Have you ever wondered what it takes to build a successful business in the Australian property industry? Well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Business and Property Development, a monthly podcast in which industry leaders share their insights and experience with host Harry Karadimus. Hello, and a huge welcome back to Business and Property Development. This is the beginning of the second season of the podcast, and I'm very excited to be bringing the next eight monthly episodes over the middle portion of this year. For myself, this season has started on a pretty big high. Planning for this first episode started way back in mid-2021, so it is with great pleasure that I get to share with you a fantastic conversation I had with Michael Grant of Cornerstone. If you're engaged in the property development space, you'll know Cornerstone needs no introduction. Developments like Rockpool, Number One Lacey, Cleveland & Co, Griffiths Tees and Casbah are just some of the magic additions Michael and his company have created in the Sydney urban landscape. Cornerstone is known for architectural excellence. This in turn translates not only to significant price records being achieved, but also for making material differences to the way people live, work and play in and around their buildings. As you'll come to see, this is no small part due to Michael's absolutely steadfast and dogged commitment to design and construction quality and excellence. Michael's story is an amazing mix of personal drive, business acumen and made luck. But don't take my word for it, settle in and listen for yourself. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Michael Grant. Michael, welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for being with me today. Absolute pleasure, Harry. To kick things off, I'd like to set the scene by putting some context around who you are. So uh, I'd like to begin by asking, where were you born and where you grew up? I was born in Sydney. I grew up in Kalani Heights on the northern beaches. I had an incredibly happy childhood. Went to Kalani Heights High. I left school when I was in end of year nine, early year 10. Oh, sorry, end of year 10 and started an electrical apprenticeship. Did my apprenticeship with my father. Um, who was a, a running an electrical business for all his whole life and because I just didn't love school so I thought what do I do um, started working did my apprenticeship with my father when I finished that I thought I'd take the family business over my mother said if you want to set your own business up sorry if you want your own business you should set your own business up which I never truly understood I went overseas for six months came back and said I've, you know, I've been around the world I'm ready to set, take over the business and to which he said no again. So it took me several goes before I could actually, and it took me another 15 years post to work out why she did what she did. After sort of four rejections of taking out the family business, eventually bought a truck, put a piece of conduit on the top and started my own electoral business, only because my mother gave me no choice. Fast forward 15 years, I got lucky to go on a trip with her and it was really just wanted to give a young person the confidence to make your own decisions and be your own person, not stand in the shadow of your father, Dad had been self-employed his whole life. I had incredibly, two incredibly highly achieving um, older and younger brothers. And she said, you've got to be your own person, stand on your own two feet. It took me a long time to work that out. One of the earliest, greatest gifts that I could have had. Once I finally worked out that I had to run my own business, I went from sort of no staff to an apprentice to three staff to four staff. I was so lucky in the foundation of setting my business up that I started doing a little bit of work for a company called Mainbrace. They gave me a $700 job, then a... $1,500 job, then a $5,000 job, then a $10,000 job. So they took me on a journey 
they knew that it was quite green. They could have, uh, then I got a $30,000 job, then a $60,000 job. There was one point where they actually probably could have sent me broke, but they chose to nurture me and help me through a journey, which was something I didn't understand at the time in terms of a DNC contract. I thought DNC was do and charge, not design and construct. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a very, uh, I could go on for hours about that one. Yeah. But the founder of Mainbrace, Greg Milson, who's been a very influential part of my life as well, eventually took me through, sat me down gave me more money than I actually should have probably got even gave me more money at the end of the job because they knew I didn't make money on the job so very quickly I started doing a lot of work for the likes of Mainbrace and Hilliers did some work for Build Corp um, and those sort of mid-tier contractors went from no staff members to 20 very quickly and I just learned I you know, got out of bed at four o'clock every day finished at 10 o'clock most nights did that you know seven days a week 16 hours a day for probably 15 years but I think one of the great things for me as a developer has been that having it coming from a trade background particularly as an electrician we're the first person onto a site because you normally disconnect the power before the building gets knocked down or depending on that you put the temporary power on you put conduits in every slab behind every wall so you're going through you know seeing formwork you're seeing steel laid chasing you know conduits in behind uh, wall finishes things in like you know ceilings you come back again you start to fit off and normally the last to leave when you turn the power on when the, when the job's commissioned. So as a trade goes, you actually go all the way through all the steps of construction, which has helped me immensely last 30 years as a developer. You know, so there was a huge amount of learning. I took on things I should have never have taken on, but, you know, but I learned so much. Subbies are always you know, hard to get paid, so you learn how to manage cash. I was really lucky that I, I chose carefully who I work for, and I, I had very, very little bad debt. I was lucky I didn't lose too much money because if there was a problem, we just got in and fixed it. But what it does teach you to do, it really did teach you to do, is how to manage cash, how to manage a business, how to manage people, and more importantly, pick the businesses to work with that had the right culture, that didn't want to screw the subbies. Because you know, if the subby, if the builder loses money, the subby loses money. Quality goes down. So you know, I've always paid more for a building contract as a developer because you want to have the better contractor that has a better culture, that has the better subbies. Whereas most developers or a lot of builders want to screw everyone down and think, well, you know, you're the lowest common denominator and you know, everyone loses money. That's right. But ultimately, culturally, for a project, it's a disaster if that happens. Numerous learnings going from a contracting life. And I was very blessed to have it, to be honest. I think it's made me a better developer, having the trade background and all the learnings I did have. If you overthink things, you can actually um, you know, make the wrong decision. I just organically went along. I had some bad days, some good days. It becomes very evident who's kind to you and what the culture is. You know, when you put an invoice in, you're paid seven days later. Um, when a builder tells you, look, honestly, I think your price is too cheap and you should put some more on the money, you sure got all these things covered. Which today, most people say, oh, look, I can save 50 bucks there, or 100, you know, and the contract we were doing, it was you know, many tens of thousands of dollars. Mm. So when you've got a builder that says, listen, I think you're too light on here, 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 and there, it's a lesson I've still done to builders today. I think oh, your price is wrong here, your price is wrong there. Because as a developer now, you want to make sure the builder's got the right price. And as a builder, you want to make sure the subby's got the right price. So I was lucky that earlier I had some extraordinary, uh, and most of it honestly came from Mainbrace. They just had this great culture. There was this incredibly consistent thing of fairness. It was about making sure the quality was right, but that was in terms of the work, but also the pricing and the whole process. So, you know, it happened organically. I was lucky, but it became self-evident very quickly who was right and who was wrong. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I took the good lessons, learnt from the bad, and then just kept on, you know, applying the, the good lessons I'd, I'd been lucky enough to have. You mentioned you did your contracting business for about 15 years. How did property development begin to come into it? 
My very first property development, which is a, a slightly interesting story, where I was probably when I was about 18, and it was still very much before I started, probably 15 years before I started, went actually into, into property full time. I bought a um, cemetery plot at South Country Cemetery, um, paid two, th- 3000 for the land, I think it was, built the mausoleum, which was cost me about, at the time, 6000 to do. I'd spent nine. I ended up selling it. It was, um, it was a very famous Lebanese cemetery um, at South Coogee. Sold it for 24000 made 15000 And I thought, I bought a block of land. I've spent some money. I clad it with the right marble. So I sold it. I was in the, I was in the Prestige Street with Ruben F. Scarf, Sir Nick Shahady, uh, all the Maloofs. So it was like the best street in the cemetery, such a thing. And I thought, yeah, so very early I learned that you know, if you buy the right block of land, get the target market correct, build something, and this is totally my subconscious, that stayed with me. I spent the, I took that money that I made and went to Europe for nine months and just started with a great love of travel, a great love of architecture. Yeah, roll forward probably some 14, 15 years. I was doing a lot of electoral work for a Northern Beaches developer, a guy called John Taylor. He said, I said, John, you know, why are you doing this and why are you doing that? He became good friends. I'd go, uh, you know, twilight sailing with me, play a bit of golf here and there. And I, so I was always incredibly interested in property. And I said, if you, and he said, well, if you'd like to do something, you know, if you find something, we'll do it together. So within three months, I'd run out and found three projects, uh, uh, two townhouses at Greenwich, two homes in Collaroy, and another four townhouses in Collaroy. And he said, how much money have you got? And I said, look, I haven't got much because I was still robbing Peter to pay Paul in the contracting business. I said, I think I'd come up with you know, $100,000, which was an extreme amount of money in the early 90s. Um, he said, well, okay, I'll, we'll call that your equity, 25%. I'll put the rest in. And then I'll, rent the, I'll lend the rest of the money, so let's go and do it. It was really just a, a great opportune, uh, opportunity presented by him. But you and had to make it that. You had to make I, that I had, look, I had to go, and, to, find, had to go yeah. and find the things. He, and he left me alone. He was a fantastic human being, sadly passed away several years ago. And so really, I was still running my contracting business, which I did for probably another eight or ten years after I started property. So I was still running two things for a long time. I was proud to say the very first thing we did won a uh, medium, uh, medium density uh, award for design uh, in the two towns we did at Greenwich. They all made money, which was nice. Yeah, so that was the, the sort of the starting of transitioning from electrical into, uh, into property. Were you doing everything involved in those projects while you were running your contract? Yeah, I was. So, so, I, you know, so I got the approvals. Yeah. I worked with, you know, I picked the builder, I worked with the builder, obviously went through the marketing, went through the, you know, what, what is it going to look like, delivered the building. So you know, I was really had two full-time jobs. So I was working more and more and more, but that was what it was at the time. Were you like lo- you were obviously loving what you were what you were doing? I thrived on the right? adrenaline, if I'm totally honest. Yeah, yeah, it was tiring. Yes, it was exhausting. By that stage, I had a guy that had been with me for probably ten years in my electrical business, who was truly running it, who gave me a lot more freedom to actually have more time to start the property stuff. It also gave me, and he was the business was making money, so I was there was no great financial duress of trying to do both. And because the development stuff was privately funded with all private cash. We weren't beholden to the bank. We weren't beholden to different mm. things, which was a, which was also a very good learning lesson. Yeah. So, with the guidance and, and your mentorship, you obviously had John. Your it was the very first person that actually backed me in, and yeah. then I did another project with my now ex father in law. So, very rapidly, that was sort of years one to three. I was running the electoral business. Um, just before that, I actually had a, another. I've been very lucky in my life. I had probably fifteen mentors, which I know will probably come to. But I was lucky that I'd actually had a, a, a cousin, a, a husband of a cousin, who um, was really my probably f- true first property mentor. That taught me a lot about options, site consolidation. So I managed to convince five people in DY to sell me their five blocks of land for a thousand dollars each. 
I sold it for 300000 once I had their five options. Ironically, to John Taylor, who was my first guy who bought them back for me. I thought, you know, better than being an electrician. I spent five, made, made two ninety five, had five cups of coffee. So I thought, that's going to be a good deal. That's a good deal, uh, yeah. Um, so <laughs> it, it was really, that was really the start then of thinking that, you know, I want to you know, really make my career into property. I'd still loved what I've done in my electoral business. I, you know, there was good days and bad days in any business. The medium of property was much more exciting to me. It was much more passionate to me. So it was really the, the beginning in, in the early, well, 1993, 94. Seems like you had a, a string of very positive influences on your life that enabled you to... Look, I, 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 I certainly have. I was lucky that I started with an incredible family life. So I was very lucky. I had an incredible. So I had this amazing childhood. As I grew up and you know, from you know, early teen life into transition from school into work, my dad had the most extraordinary work ethic. I developed a very strong work ethic from him. He was also incredibly creative. He built boats. He built farms. He just worked and worked and had, in his own way, had this incredible creativity that was nothing he couldn't do and this incredible can-do attitude. My mother had the most extraordinary gift as an artist and a painter. So I had this, you know, this upbringing of art and architecture and sculpture and things from her. So I got this great starting point where I was always told, love what you do, do it with integrity, do it with passion. Doesn't matter what you do, I don't care if you're a garbo, a doctor, a rocket scientist, just do what you do with passion and love for what you do. So I was lucky there, then I got lucky with John, then I was really lucky just to go on this incredible roller coaster, not really roller coaster, but just seems to be like climbing Everest really in many ways, but never sort of stopping with this great collection of different people that put time into me. And then, you know, quickly I had a guy called Gary Teak who founded the Franklin's business, who was extraordinary business mentor to me. And I did projects with Gary for probably 15 years, all with cash, no bank debt. It was three questions. How much do you want? How long do you want it for? And how much do we want to make? I'd have a cup of tea once a month. If the reports were good, they'd be green highlight. If they were bad, they'd be pink highlighters. If I'd worked up and I'd seen go through the sheets, there was a lot of green, we'd talk about the cricket. Yep. If there was pink, he'd ask me three questions, never had an opinion. So I did a lot of stuff with Gary. He was an extraordinary person for discipline, and I learned a huge amount. I also did a lot with a guy called Bill James, um, who was a founder of Flight Centre. He was in the same journey, say, how much do you want? Same, same three questions all the time. He taught me, Gary was unbelievably disciplined about business. Bill was unbelievably dissimilar. How do you have the greatest time you can, have as much fun as you can? So different lifestyle examples, but mm-hmm. also Bill had some extraordinary stories on his um, journey of flight centre. And then I did some, so my ex-father-in-law, who I spent a lot of time with, who funded a lot of early projects when I really went from, so within a period of the first two or three years, we sort of went into this journey of all of a sudden doing blocks of 12, 15, 27, oh, right. 30. So the sort of business directory was 2 million, 5 million, 10, 30, 70 million across a four year journey of, um, in terms of revenue growth. We're sort of riding the roller coaster, but I was always lucky to have these incredibly older, sage partners that kept me grounded. Gary would say, yeah, let's do extraordinary things in a quite humble way. You know, don't seek publicity, clean up as you go, don't get ahead of yourself, do two projects at a time, don't do 10. So this great grounding all the time from, you know, three or four extraordinary business mentors that just literally kept me very grounded. I was very lucky that they had a lot of cash, so we could ride out whatever happened. So you know, that, that was the sort of the, the early foundations of building a business with great advice from people. You still, you, know, you still have to listen to the advice and take the advice, which I was lucky enough that I did. So from a collection of sort of people like that, I was, that sort of really was the, the business foundation starting. Then I got really lucky that I was also blessed with dealing with extraordinary architects that actually took me into the journey of how do I build my business with a vision. Well, a simple thing originally was to have a, a vision that's to build a business that's based upon change the way people live. 
I later added change the way people live and work because we did a lot of commercial adaptive reuse. Um, I did a lot with a company called Billard Lease out of Melbourne, who was a good mm-hmm. developer's architect, run by a guy called Ron Billard and David Lease, who are still very dear friends today. Ron and I travelled a lot. We went to America a lot. We looked at different buildings. We learned things. So he was sort of very early in the piece. But the entire great love architecture really came out in the 90s when I spent, I was lucky enough to do a project with Alex Popov called the Rockpool Apartments in Malabar Beach. I'd actually done some electric work for Vogue. Alex was doing the architect's house for Vogue. Met Alex. Um, I said, I've got this harebrained scheme. I knew how, you know, what great work and what great regard he had. Anyway, so we had this most fabulous journey, which started, I think, probably 1996, so, you know, a long time ago. Alex, we did the most extraordinary apartments. We won every award you could ever hope to have won. But more important through the journey, he sent me to the 10 things that changed his life in his career. And I had to go and look at, so I had all these locations. I started in Russia. I went from Russia to Denmark, Denmark to France, France to Spain, and then back into Italy. The journey was to go and look at the 10 things, which was a combination of form, function, landscape, how the building sits in the urban topography, art, colour, uh, interiors, and it was all based around Utzon because he worked a lot. He was married to Utzon's daughter and spent a lot of time, um, obviously, with Utzon. Henning Larsing, and then it was Alvarolto, Le Corbusier, Ms. Van der Rohe, Gaudi. So I had this great learning lesson, and uh, I used to do my mother with me. Is actually, that's when I actually learnt why she was so hard on me from the 15 years before. And we had this amazing trip because my great love and architecture came from her. So I said, Mum, I've got, I'm going to Alex to send me on this trip. Look at all the places I'm going to. And I said, here's a ticket. So we, I flew a first class with the most extraordinary five weeks. And we'd go and stand where Alex, Alex would give me directions to go and say, stand in the field yeah, outside Copenhagen look at one of Woodson's housing projects. And so the directions of what he'd seen were so specific. So I had to go and then I had to come back to Alex and say, here's what I saw. What did you see? And that, that whole thing continued. So... That really gave me the most extraordinary foundation of some of the obviously the most, some of the most famous architects there ever that ever was, but more important, this great connection with Alex particularly, that has still still happens today. Um, I spent some time with him recently in his farmhouse in Mallorca. We just finished Griffith T Apartments a few years ago with, with with him, which was great. But it was a really early foundation of why design so important. Alex said to me very early in the piece as another piece of great mentor advice: never focus on the money. If you focus on the quality of design, the quality of construction, and get your market right, the money will take care of itself, which you know, in the 90s was a great thing to learn as a young, aspiring developer. But uh, you know, I, I knew what I wanted to do and what I wanted to achieve, but I probably didn't 100% know how to do it. I got great business advice about being conservative, about being measured, about managing risk, about managing cash from business mentors. But the true design part, I was lucky with Alex, such an early part of my career, to have that traveling around the world. And then subsequently, every project I do, I fly somewhere with whoever the architect is to find some reference point to look at some other famous building to just study, learn, listen. So I had this you know, this great reference point of this extraordinary trip for five weeks of looking at these things based upon this thing, then talking to what I, who I think is one of Australia's greatest architects. Um, it was you know, it was a truly transformational and turning point in what I was doing. It's pretty incredible to have that that advice from very early on because even in when you see young development companies, you often don't get access to people of that calibre so early on. So, to be honest, it then got it built. I then was lucky enough that you know the preceding you know, three or four years, I started doing a lot of stuff with Adam Hatter from SJB, Ian Halliday from BKH who I think at the forefront of what they do. I think Ian's probably one of the best interactives in the country by country mile. And the hard part with all these people, when you, when you spend so much time and so much passion, Alex is one of my dearest friends today, 
Adam and uh, you know, Adam's one of my truly best friends. So we have this great, you know, which is sometimes hard because it's not easy to be someone's friend if you're also going to be their boss sometimes. So with your journey in property development, was Cornerstone established at that? Was it, was it, was it established always Cornerstone? So, so I established the name in 1994, probably 92, 93, our first, my very first project. But the actual Cornerstone was actually set up in 94. The name Cornerstone, because Cornerstone's the um, foundation of a building block, which um, I thought was a nice name for a company because it had some reference point to construction. And then we sort of launched into it and sort of eventually phased out electrical. And so what ended up happening with your contracting business? The guy that ran it for me, for who's with me for nearly 20 years, who I think in 20 years had three days off, never lost me money on a job. In the end, I tried, at one point I tried to sell him the business and then he wouldn't take it. And then I gave him, I eventually gave him this, he still didn't want to take it, but eventually Greg's taken it over and now he runs it himself. It still exists. Um, he never changed the name, I don't know why. And I still see Greg, we had a great relationship for a long period of time. And yeah, I'm always thankful for him because he enabled me the time and the freedom by making enough money in my electoral business to still you know, build a family, build a life. Um, so so, so it, was, it was a great part of my life in a different way. In terms of challenges faced in the early days, so you've, you've got some very strong sort of mentors, uh, which gave you this, this amazing sort of education and guidance. Were there any challenges along the way? Look, there's challenges in every in every business. Mm. I think the greatest learnings in my early days were that the depth of the valley is always deeper, and the width of the gorge is always wider than what you always think. Twice yeah, as deep as uh, it's twice <laughs> as deep you think. You think you need ten dollars, you really need twenty. You think it's going to take you yeah. six months, takes you nine months. So I think there was a lot of learnings in that regard. And I, I, I do think in you know particularly the nineties, back into the nineties, when you know there's different things happening. There was an Asian um, collapse in '99. I think when actually we took Rockwell to the market, having partners that had very deep pockets enables have the just the ability to sit quietly pick the right time to go to the market don't go too early don't need to sacrifice protect your margin make sure your costs under control i yes i worked hard but yes i was very lucky to have some very sage advice that i was lucky enough to take so yeah the lesson sort of just sort of once again organically grew and i think you have to have to, i think for any young kid any young person i think you know, and I'm lucky enough that I have one or two people come and you know, occasionally seek advice from me, which I can never quite work out why. But um, you, know, you still like to say, honestly, learn, learn, learn. Mm. Never never think you know everything because you don't. I mean, I've been doing this for a long time and today I learn something new. So every day you learn something new. So you know, as long as you have that, that aptitude to think, well, I want to learn, I want to grow and listen. But also to seek advice because you'd be surprised how many older people who go through their careers actually have time and happy to put time back in because they've been lucky enough to have people put time into them. People think, oh, I can't ask him because he would be too busy. But, you know, people that have been, had a variety of different success in whatever industry actually like helping young people to you know, grow their, their lives and careers. So, yeah. you know, always ask the question. This is the end of the first part of the episode. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Michael's journey so far. Coming up will be the second part of the episode where we discuss Cornerstone's landmark projects and Michael's passion for architecture. See you soon.